0: So, this morning, we are jumping into an absolutely massive topic morality. And that means we're gonna be covering issues like good and bad, uh, right and wrong, virtue and vice. If I can be a little bit honest with you, that is a lot for me to cover. And so, in order to give us a little bit of a grounding, a little bit of a a place to start this morning, uh, what we've done is over the last couple of weeks, we went out into the wild, into places like uh, UQ and and South Bank, and and we grabbed a hold of some real people. Uh, So I promise you, none of them are are actors. They're not paid stunt doubles. Uh, And we just asked them questions. Uh, We asked them things like, hey, is the world a good place? Uh, What makes a person a good person? And uh, because we are in in a Christian context, if there was a God, uh, would that God be a good one? Uh, and as you're about to see, we've got a whole bunch of really different responses. So take a look at the screen and let's see what they said.
1: I think there's good and bad parts of the world, but we try to be good. <laughs> I think anything can be completely 100% good. I think that's very, it's a bit more nuanced than that. Um, but I'd say to be good is just to be like constantly striving to be better. I think it's definitely one way of looking at it. Good people. I wouldn't say like the world in general is good. I think people have good goals and good aims. Good people and bad people. But you like to think it's good, but it's there's always like different situations that happen. Um, Like everyone has a opposing view sometimes, and not everyone's on the same page. I feel like everyone thinks they're good. I think know what goodness looks like, and we want to improve. But um, yeah, we constantly try and try and try and we, we just struggle to
2: to get it. I think the world in general is pretty arbitrary. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say good. I think there's good aspects and it can be good, it can be bad. I think God would think of himself as good um, and his actions would be that of virtue uh, but that, that uh, sort of idea of good wouldn't necessarily align up with everyone else's idea I think he would consider himself to be good. But whether I consider him to be good?
1: For people who believe in him, I think he's good. I think maybe for other people who believe in other religions, they might view him differently. It just depends on your perspective, I guess. If you want to be a good person, so then what, when you want to, yeah, uh, help others and help animals and help the nature, just trying is the best we can do
2: it. i'm not saying you have to be perfect because you never will be you'll have issues you'll have problems and you'll have sin but um at the end of the day the overall fruit in your life you'll be you'll be getting better and better and it may take years you know just keep working at it so eventually you'll be righteous if you don't give up which will make you good i guess just doing the right thing like but yeah that's a tough one but yeah in my opinion just doing the right thing that's i consider right
1: It's kind of hard because I feel like it's different for every person, like everyone has a different perspective on it. I think the big thing for me personally is like, it sounds so cliche, but like treat others how you want to be treated and just like, I guess have respect for other people. I think respect's a big thing and I think if you're respectful to everyone in your life, then you're ultimately a good person. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right, so as I said, a whole bunch of different responses from all along the spectrum. Uh, A lot of them were actually pretty consistent with each other, that they work as a cohesive worldview. Uh, Others of them contradicted with each other and sort of uh, clashed a little bit. But I actually think for the most part, they give us a a really solid foundation to work from this morning. And and so my job is in the next 19 minutes and seven seconds, uh, I need to try and tackle the entire topic Why morality? Uh, Does it exist? Is there such a thing as right and wrong? And and if it does exist, what in the world do I do with it? And so that means I'm covering essentially an entire uni uh, course worth of topic in the next uh, 18 minutes and 45 seconds now. So uh, are we up for that this morning, Kenmore? Awesome. Uh, So because this is such a big topic, I, I thought we would start in a place that we can all relate to. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, uh, can I just get a show of hands? Who has ever been in an argument or a disagreement with someone? Uh, And husbands, if you argued with your wife on the way to church this morning, just keep your hands down. It'll be better for you, I promise. Uh, (laughs) No, what's interesting is if you actually stop and you listen to two people arguing, uh, whether it's two strangers bickering on a bus or your kids fighting over who gets the toy, or uh, even if it is a, a husband and wife having a, a lively conversation on the way to church in the morning, uh, if you actually stop and listen, you'll hear the same sort of phrases repeated over and over again Hey, that's not fair. But, Dad, you promised. How would you like it if anyone did the same to you? Uh, That's my seat, I was there first. Leave him alone, he isn't doing you any harm. Who gave you the right to push in and give me your toy? Because I gave you mine. These are the sort of phrases, the sort of lines that that every single person, uh, whether it's an illiterate person or an educated person, uh, whether it's someone who's religious or from a secular background, or, or whether it is a child or an adult relies upon, when it comes to arguments. And see, what I find really interesting about those sort of phrases is that the person is never just saying, hey, I don't like that you did that. It's not, I don't like uh, that you didn't keep your promise, or I don't like that you pushed in line, or I don't like that you didn't share your toy with me. More often, it's something along the lines of, hey, you actually shouldn't be doing that that it's not right for you to do that. That if you stop and you listen to people argue over something, what you'll find is for the the most part, they're sort of saying that the other person has broken some unspoken standard that they are expected to to know and obey. And and what's even more interesting, most of the time, the other person, they they won't turn to you and say, well, I don't care about your standards. I'm going to do whatever I want. Instead, they they try and argue and and convince you that, well, if you actually consider the the nuances of this specific circumstance, then then it's okay that uh, I'm breaking the law, or, or, you know, it's it's not actually a contradiction of these unspoken standards. That then no one would ever turn to you and say, oh, I'm allowed to break my promises. Do it whenever I want. Instead, they'll, they'll turn to you and say, well, in this specific case, you know, something came up at work, and that's why I couldn't keep my promise. Or it's okay that I pushed in line this one time because I was in such a rush. Or the reason I'm not giving you my toy is my toy is more special than your toy, and so that makes it okay for me not to to reciprocate this action. And if your three-year-olds are having that sort of conversation, well done on uh, on educating them to that level. Uh, But seriously, the way these arguments work is that one party insists that the other has broken some unspoken standard they're expected to know about. And in response, the other person goes, no, I actually haven't when you consider the circumstance. And that whole back and forth, it only really works if we're all playing by the same rule. That if I'm on a soccer field and someone goes to pick up the ball with their hands, there's no use me telling them that that's wrong unless we both agree we're actually playing soccer. Uh, and so, when it comes to arguments and disputes, it's almost it's almost as if we all are following the same rule book. so so are we tracking so far? does that, does that make sense? Cool one of you that's that's good. Uh, so what I want to call this idea of a rule of right and wrong it's the moral law. and I know that sounds kind of daunting. I know that sounds um bit of a big term, and hopefully it doesn't take you to places like religion or the Ten Commandments, I haven't done a bait and switch on you, I'm not trying to uh, cram the Bible down your throat, Uh, we're nowhere near the rules of the Bible. All I've shown you is that when people have arguments or disputes, they inherently rely upon this moral law in order to have that conversation, in order to show that they are right and the other person is wrong. And what I want to try and show you guys this morning is that this idea of a moral law, it it exists, and it's something that we can inherently rely upon and others can rely upon as well. Uh, But but first, let's jump into a couple objections. So the, the first thing I would normally hear to an idea like this is something along the lines of, well, Liam, this doesn't work, because my definition of right and wrong may be different to yours you know, different cultures have developed differently over time, and, and so if you were to play out the world a thousand times over you, you would end up with a thousand different definitions of right and wrong. And, and this is actually a viewpoint that came through in a couple of the, the interviews we saw, that, that people argue that the moral law is subjective. And, and look, I get that argument. Uh, and, and for sure, there are some differences in what people view as, as right and wrong are uh, in between different cultures. But if you actually go through the effort of, of sitting down and, and going through some ancient texts from uh, different cultures across time and in different locations, and, and you pull out what their understanding of the moral law was, what you'll find is those differences, they're not as significant as you might first think. Uh, that whether you're looking at ancient Egyptians or ancient Babylonians or or Hindu writings or or ancient Viking writings, what you'll find is that from different places across the globe, from different points in time, uh, people have sort of had this same idea of what is right and what is wrong. Uh, And look, I didn't go through the effort of um, finding all those ancient texts. I'm not a historian. Uh, But C.S. Lewis, an Oxford academic from the 1900s, Uh, Also the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, He also wrote a book called Mere Christianity, which I'm uh, taking a lot of his argument from this morning. He did. He sat down, he went through a whole bunch of uh, historical texts from across the globe, and and he extracted what their idea of of the moral law was. And and what he found is that the ancient Norse poem, the Velospa, which describes the creation of the world according to the Vikings. Well, the Vikings believed that hell would be populated by those who lie, steal, murder, and commit adultery. And if those four crimes seem pretty familiar to you, it's because all four of them find themselves in the Ten Commandments of the ancient Hebrews, which was written 2,000 years earlier and halfway across the globe. Are uh, That the ancient Egyptians believed caring for the old, giving bread to the hungry, water to the thirsty, and clothing the naked were characteristics of good men, And the ancient Babylonians believed doing those exact same actions would please the gods. That Homer wrote in the Iliad, how hateful are men who say one thing and hide another in their heart. And the Hindu writing, the Janet says that when we lie, all of our good deeds are obliterated. That both the aboriginals in Australia and the native tribes of North America believe that one should take care of the sick, the widow, the orphans, and the elderly, and both Confucius the ancient Chinese philosopher and Jesus Christ of Nazareth said, do unto others what you would have them do to you. And I could go on and on and on and on. In fact, I've actually printed off nine pages of this stuff. So if anyone wants to have a look at at what these ancient people believed when it comes to right and wrong, uh, please grab a hold of me at the end of the service. Uh, But but to summarize what what C.S. Lewis found when he he went through uh, this exercise, he wrote, men may have differed, in regards to what you sh- to which people you should be unselfish to, uh, whether it's only your family or your fellow countrymen or everyone in general. But they've always agreed that you should not put yourself first, for selfishness has never been admired. That men might have differed as to whether you should have one wife or four, but they've always agreed that you should not simply take for yourself any woman that you like. In fact, he goes on, to imagine a country where people were admired for running away in battle, or where a man felt proud for double-crossing all the people closest to him, would be like imagining a country where two plus two equals five. That this idea of morality, that this idea of a moral law, it has remained fairly consistent across the ages. And sure, it can twist, it can shift, it can change to some degree depending on on where and when you were brought up and and the sort of values your parents instilled in you but the, the general ideas they have remained the same throughout the time throughout the ages that the moral law is not a cultural construct all right so another objection you may have to this is you, you might turn to me and say liam aren't you just describing a set of characteristics you know being kind being generous uh, loving those around you and uh, humanity simply has these characteristics built into us because, evolutionarily speaking, they were good characteristics for us to have. That those who behaved in accordance with a so-called moral law, a rule of right and wrong, they simply did better than others in the long run. And, and look, for sure, we do sometimes have like a desire to help others. And you can call that a herd instinct or herd mentality or whatever you want. I'm not going to try and argue you on that one. But having the desire to help someone is completely different from saying that it is morally correct to do so. In the same way that if I have a desire to to eat an entire cheesecake by myself, which I occasionally do, I fight my own battles, uh, that, that would say nothing at all about the morality of whether or not I should do that. Uh, In fact, I would actually argue to you that there are times in our life where we have to sort of push down our instincts, push down our natural desires in order to do what we know is morally correct. That sometimes the two actually run in opposite and contradictory directions. I mean, if you were walking along a river, right? and you saw someone drowning in some rapids, the morally correct thing to do in that moment, I think we would all agree, would be to to go in and try and help them, or at least do something to get them out of that situation. And yet, for most of us, our our survival instincts would kick in and we'd probably run away and hide in case the the, the rapids try and get us as well. That biology doesn't really serve as an explanation for the moral law either. Now look, for, for the sake of time... I'm fully aware of the fact that there are a whole bunch of other arguments you could have against this idea of a moral law. Uh, And again, if you want to grab a hold of me at the end of the service, chat through any of them. I love this stuff. I would absolutely love to do that with you. Uh, But if we put those to the side for a moment, I think we can all agree that at the very least, we're forced to grapple with this idea that maybe, just maybe, a moral law exists, that there is a true right and wrong. And if that is the case, then I I want to land at this first half of the message this morning by by asking a very simple question. What do we do with that? Because if a real moral law exists, then we we can all agree that something has gone horribly wrong because we can't keep it. And if anyone here is an exception to that rule, I apologize for wasting your time this morning. Uh, you should probably have been up here giving this message instead of me. Uh, but but for the rest of us mere mortals, we can't do it, right? And I'll happily put my hand up and say, like, I am chief among us. Like, there are times in my life where I'm an absolutely horrible human being. I get angry when I know I shouldn't. Um, I, I'm selfish when I should be generous. I'm I'm self-focus when when I should be loving others, that the people I actually have a deep abiding relationship with, I I don't treat them the way I want them to, let alone how I treat the rest of the world, that I've lied, I've stolen, I've hurt people I care about. And and look, some of you are probably way, way better than me. I I imagine there are people in this room that you can go many, many, many hours without being the sort of person you, you know you should be. But at the end of the day, we all put our head down on the pillow and we all know that we have failed to practice the kind of behavior we expect from others, that we have all broken the moral law. And so again, what do we actually do with that? And see, in the responses we had from the people we interviewed, the only real answer we got to that sort of question is, well, you just try harder, Uh, that, that you know you just try and be a slightly better version of yourself. You try and follow the moral or just a little bit closer. Because at the end of the day, you're never going to be perfect, right? So just trying harder, it's the best you can do. And look, as much as I respect that approach to life, I think it's kind of lacking something. Because if you actually stop and think about what that means, it's it's sort of like, if all you can do is try and try and try, but no matter how hard you try, you're never going to hit that standard, then you're either um, resigning yourself to a life of constant disappointment, where no matter how hard you try, you never hit that mark, or else you're surrendering to a state of despondency and cynicism, where you know that there's no point in trying anyway, because you're never going to get it. It's like you're constantly pushing a boulder up a hill, but, but every day you just slide back down to the bottom, and, and you're never going to get it. So what do we do with it? And look, here's where I'm going to shift gears a bit and transition into uh, the second question this morning, because I I do actually believe there's an answer to this question. And it's more than simply trying harder. But in order for me to present it to you, I need to grab a hold of an explicitly Christian worldview. Uh, And I know there are probably some of you in this room this morning that that, that's not a worldview you uh, subscribe to, it's not something you hold to and Uh, If that is you this morning, I am so glad you could join us this morning. Uh, I'm so glad you've willingly submitted yourself to to hearing me speak for 40 minutes. I know that's a lot to get through. Uh, But I'm going to assume that if you're here this morning, you're at least open to this dialogue we're about to have. And so how do you answer the question, why morality? Well, I believe first you have to answer the question, why Jesus? Because the way I look at the world... Both of these questions, they actually have the exact same answer. But look, that's me getting a little bit ahead of myself. So uh, again, to give us a a starting point, a foundation to work from, we went out and we asked the public, why Jesus? Like, who is he? Did he exist? What sort of things did he do? Uh, And why in the world is he still relevant to the world around us today? So let's take a look at the screen and see what they said.
2: Uh, I think Jesus was... A real person uh, that existed uh, in um, uh, Israel and the Middle East, uh, and started the Christian faith, I guess. Jesus, uh, I think he was a man born of um, virgin Mary, uh, way in the past. I think like 2,000 years ago.
1: I think most people still believe. That at least he was a person who existed and did good things. Well, um, I think Jesus was a prophet. I don't really know. I guess a historical figure or someone from the Bible that can portray good messages. I actually, thought about this. Like, I thought about thinking about this. We I think, like personally, I think he was like. I I think he was genuinely real because like mm. a lot of facts like around it. So. I think so, but um, I don't think he might have been as like I think he was a real person, I don't know if he was like did all the things that the Bible talked about. But it's more like the stories that have been passed in generations. But I think I mean, that's probably just me looking at like, like reality I mean like some things that happened. But... I agree. I probably agree he yeah. was a real person that <laughs> preached the same views, but maybe not absolutely everything to a teen. Um, it does provide meaning to some people. And that's it's really important, and to have that sort of message being spread, I think, like regardless of what you actually believe in, if it's a good message, it's a good message. Because again, it's something to you know aim for. It's the hope. The thought that something is still good.
2: I think the effects of Catholicism mm-hmm. in that area are so mm-hmm. massive that we're still experiencing. Fallout out of, of, of that uh, i think that's why christianity retains such a, a big big hold i'd account it to historical uh, effects yeah
1: i guess kind of similar to the way people still believe in god like it's a good kind of rock in your life and that it's just like always there and i guess it kind of sets not like rules per se but like a way to live your life that's inspired by what he did and i guess they still believe it. He's with them, I guess. I'm not really too sure. think it's kind of hard. <laughs> I've really thought about him too much. Yeah. I think like Jesus, like, he is who he claims. He is like the son of God. Um, yeah, like, he came down to save everyone from their sin so that they could be with him. Nice. That happened, like, hey, like,
0: can someone come back to life? Like... So I've watched that video, like, half a dozen times, and I still haven't got over the fact that the guy looks at his watch to work out when Jesus was born. (laughs) Uh, No, but what I love about those responses is that no one actually argued against the existence of Jesus as a real historical person. Uh, That everyone said, look, he probably existed. That probably at some point in the past, he was a person who went around doing real things. Uh, In fact, most people were okay with this idea that Jesus was actually a really pivotal person uh, in the the storyline of humanity, uh, so so much so that I guess you can actually look at your watch to work out when he was born. Uh, but, But what nearly everyone said is that, you know, all those miracles he was recorded as having done, probably didn't do that. He probably didn't raise from the dead. He probably didn't walk on water or open the eyes of the blind. That's that sure, some of what the New Testament writes about him, especially his teachings, uh, that may be accurate, but, but the rest of it, you know, his life, his death, his resurrection, that probably didn't happen. And look, again, I'm actually really excited about that being our starting point this morning because that means I get to assume Jesus existed as a real historical person. So let's just start there. Uh, who was Jesus? Who, did, uh, who does history say that he was? Uh, Well, we know he was a a Jewish male, uh, that he was born in in Bethlehem uh, around 6 to 4 BC. Uh, So if you are going to use your watch to work out when he was born, you're going to be off by at least four years because of that. Uh, We know that he died by crucifixion uh, at the hands of a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate around 33 AD. And between those two points in history, his birth and his death, he went around doing something gained him a pretty serious following. Uh, Josephus, Josephus, a Jewish historian from the first century, uh, said about Jesus that he was a wise man, that he performed surprising deeds, and he was a teacher such that people would readily accept his truth. Uh, Mara, the son of uh, Serapion, a Stoic philosopher, uh, he put Jesus in the same boat as uh, Socrates and Pythagoras. Uh, Really wise men who met really untimely ends. And and look, the the Bible itself, it does describe Jesus, uh, at least in part, going around and saying the sort of things that we would ascribe to a good moral teacher. Uh, That he said things like, do unto others what you would have them do to you, Uh, love your neighbor and the much harder counterpart, love your enemies, and, and a whole bunch of other really wise things. And so on the face of it, it actually seems at least plausible that the the dominant view that people have about Jesus, that he was just a good moral teacher, it it could hold. And the only problem I have with that sort of view of Jesus is that it requires you approach uh, the historical text of the Gospels, because it is a historical text, with a pair of scissors and a highlighter. Because you sort of have to select out, uh, key verses here and there and bring them all together. And, and if you do that, you can paint a picture of a wise Jesus who, who went around saying some fairly good things. But, but if you actually stop and you look at the entirety of those texts by themselves, that picture begins to fall apart really quickly. I mean, there's a story in the Gospel of Luke, right? Where uh, Jesus' disciples, they've, they've gone out. They did sort of a, a short-term mission trip. Uh, and they come back, and they are so excited. Like, they saw amazing things. People were listening to what they had to teach. It, it was awesome, and, and they're, they're all pumped up. And uh, Jesus doesn't want them getting too big for their boots. Uh, and so he turns to them, he's like, boys, as exciting as all that is, I remember when I, say I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And okay, Camel, well, can I just say, if you're a carpenter from Nazareth, and you want people to believe you're a good moral teacher, what you shouldn't do is go around telling people that before the foundation of the world, uh, you were there in heaven and you saw when the devil became the devil and and fell out of heaven. It just, it doesn't fly with that story. Or or how about this? Uh, Gospel of John, uh, Jesus is talking to a, a whole bunch of really religious people. Uh, And, you know, these guys are so, like, proud of themselves and they're so excited about the fact that they can do all the things and they can follow all the rules and the laws. uh, And, you know, they're they're good church folk. They're descended from Abraham. Um, And Jesus just turns to this crowd and he says, look, you you guys are so fixated on Abraham. Well, before Abraham, I was. That, That before this whole religion that you're a part of even started, I was already around. In fact, he goes on to say that he was the one who sent all the prophets and the teachers, and they were kind of the ones that killed them. That every verse in the Old Testament, every law, every poem, uh, every prophecy, it actually points towards him. That Jesus would say crazy things like, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. And I am the living water. And whoever drinks from me will never thirst again. That that other, unlike every other prophet from every other world religion who, who sort of rocks up on the scene and say, says, I have come from God in order to show you the way up to him. Jesus rocks up and he says, look, I and the Father are one. And I have come that I might be the way, the truth, and the life. To summarize some of the things Jesus said, he was He was there from time immemorial with the Father. He had come down from heaven now to show people how to have a relationship with God. And one day he was coming back and he was gonna judge everyone. Campbell, those are not the sort of things you say if you want people to believe you're a good moral teacher. Look, I'll give you one more example. And this one's sort of crazy. Jesus went around forgiving people of their sins. And I know if you've grown up in sort of a churchy context, that doesn't sound too bad for you. But if you actually think about what that means, it is utterly ridiculous. See, the way the Jewish people thought about sin was that it was simply failing to live up to the moral law. Okay, so they believed there was a true idea of right and wrong. And not only that, it came from God. And God was so um, insistent upon them following it that he actually gave them a whole bunch of rules and commandments as to how they're supposed to do that. Uh, And and so sin then, in in the Jewish mindset, was literally just to to fall short of that moral law. Uh, So in a Jewish context, if I wrong you, if I cheat you, if I lie to you, whatever, uh, yes, I've sinned against you. But ultimately, I've actually sinned against God because I've broken one of his laws. So that, that was their mindset. And so what that means is for Jesus to walk around forgiving people of their sins, he was essentially claiming to forgive them of something only God could forgive. Okay, imagine this. Imagine you uh, and your husband, you had a massive fight on the, on the way to church this morning, right? Uh, and, and you're arguing, you're bickering, the whole car drive over because there's nothing like a good on the way to church argument. Uh, and, and you get here and our connection team, they just smile at you. They, they wave. They say, oh, how are you going? And, and you just turn to them and you lie through your teeth, right? You put on a smile. You say, oh, we're doing so well. Just blessed and highly favored by the Lord. And uh, then, then you come in and you sit down in here and, and you're not even listening to what I'm saying. Because uh, what's playing through your head is, well, he said this and, and he did this or he didn't do that. So imagine that's the sort of morning you had. I know it's hard to imagine. Uh, And then before the service, I walk over to you, and I turn to your husband, and I say, I forgive you. And and, and wives, I don't just forgive him for what he did this morning. Uh, I also forgive him for for everything he's ever done to you. So I forgive him for all the times he he didn't put the toilet seat back down. Uh, I, I forgive him for all the times he didn't do the washing up after you had made dinner. Uh, I even forgive him for that That one time uh, three years ago where he forgot to pick up the kids from school, like all of it. I just cover all of it in one massive, I forgive you. Now, as, as well as I'm sure that would play out, what you would turn to me, you, what you would say is you would turn to me and say, Liam, you can't do that. You can't forgive him because he hasn't wronged you. He's wronged me. Like, what gives you the right to come over here and forgive him for something he's done against me? It'd be crazy, right? And yet, if you say Jesus was a good moral teacher, then that's exactly what he was doing. He was walking up to people who were known sinners, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and he was turning to them and saying, I forgive you of your sins. And that only makes sense if he was the God whose laws were being broken. Uh, To to quote C.S. Lewis one last time, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. For a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or else something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his face and call him Lord and God but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. See, so Kemal, well, the truth of the matter is, Jesus didn't just come to teach. But yeah, in part, he, he did teach. He taught in parables. He taught in stories. He, he taught us how to be better human beings. But that wasn't really the main reason he came that Jesus didn't just come to teach us what God is like. Although again, a big part of his mission is he rocked up and he said, hey, you know that God you've been worshiping for the last couple thousand years? Well, he's not a distant deity. He's not this this far off judge sitting in the clouds. He's like a good father who actually wants a relationship with you. Although again, not the main reason he came. And Jesus didn't even come to, to start the church. Although during his earthly ministry, he turned to the disciples and he said, I will build my church, and against it, the gates of hell will not prevail. But again, not the entirety of why he came. See, for the last 2,000 years, what every Christian has essentially claimed is that the reason Jesus came to this earth was so that he could die. See, if there really is a moral law, if there really is a definition of right and wrong, and it is written on the heart of every man, and if there really is a God who created those laws, and that God is more like a person than an energy or a force, and that God's idea of right and wrong, it includes things like justice and fairness and consequences, then we're left asking the question, what do we do with the fact that we cannot keep the rules? What do we do with the fact that we can't live up to the standard that we know has been set for us. And the central Christian belief is that somehow, 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, the death of Jesus upon a cross, it solves that problem. See, what the Bible says about Jesus is that he lived a perfect life, that he did what we could never do. He lived up to the moral law. So he never fell short. He never lied, he never cheated, he never lost it with the kids or, or yelled at his wife. He, he was in every way a, a perfect human being. And despite that, one night they arrested him. One night they, they, they beat him and they mocked him and they spat in his face and they tore his clothes and uh, they took a crown of thorns and they slammed it down into his brow and, and they whipped him to within an inch of his life. And then they put a 50 kilogram wooden beam across his shoulders and they made him carry the very instrument of his torture across town before they hung him on a tree to die. And see, on that cross nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus died the most humiliating, the most painful, the most disgraceful death the world has ever known. And we would look at that atrocity today with our modern sensibilities and we say, how in the world can that cover the problem of morality? And what I would say to you is because God is the sort of God who created the moral law. That means God is the sort of God who is just, who is fair, and who is righteous. And that means there has to be some sort of consequence for the fact that we don't measure up. That in order for God to follow the moral law, there has, to be, there has to be judgment. There has to be consequences. And for us, that means separation from God. You see, God can't just ignore it. He can't just sweep it all under the rug and say, look, it's okay that you, you can't measure up. It's okay that you can't follow this moral law. I'll just give you all a pass and we'll get on with our life. Because that would make God an unjust God. In fact, it, in fact, it would make him contradict the moral law. It would be like having a, a judge sitting court over like a mass murderer and there's, there's video evidence, there's, um, there's biologic evidence, like all the, the accounts just make it so clear that this murderer has done what he's been uh, arrested for and, and the judge looks at all that evidence and says, nah, I'm going to say you're innocent. God can't do that. And so because God is good, and because God is just, he looks at us, he looks at me and you. People who can't live up to the moral law, and, and he swings down the gavel, and he says guilty. But then instead of handing us the, the, the punishment, the consequences we deserve, he, he steps down from that throne of judgment. He, he takes off his royal robes, and he dresses himself like me and you, like an ordinary human, God made man, Jesus Christ. And he says, I will take the punishment in your place. And see, when God does that, he remains perfectly just because sin, our inability to follow the moral law, it has been paid for. And at the same time, God remains merciful in that he has been the one to pay the price. And so what the Bible explains, it's not this, this rules-based system, it's not this life of judgment and condemnation, it's a great exchange. Now, for anyone who would believe in Jesus, whoever would trust that that somehow what he did on the cross that counts for us, then what happens is, is he gets accredited uh, to him all our brokenness or our failure or our inability to do what is right, that gets put on him, and in return, we get his uh, perfect record accredited to us. It would be like you were millions upon millions upon millions of dollars in debt. And there's no way in the world you, you can ever come close to, to paying that off, even if you work for the rest of your life. And then the richest man in the world walks up to you, and he says, if you just trust me, if you just Uh, commit your life to me, then we'll switch accounts. I'll give you all of my surplus and I'll take in its place all of your debt. That's what Jesus did on the cross. So why morality? And the band can come up as we finish this off. Well, my answer to you would be a moral law exists. A a A true right and wrong exists and we can't live up to it. And why Jesus? Well, Jesus could. And if we trust in him, if we believe in him, then then he will pay the price, and that allows us into a relationship with God. And look, I am fully aware of the fact that there's probably a lot of things I haven't covered adequately enough this morning. Uh, You know, things like how our sin actually separates us from God and and how in the world Jesus dying on the cross allows us this great exchange and probably 10,000 other questions that are sitting on your mind. And again, if you want to grab a hold of me at the end of the service, I would love to to, to discuss and, and walk through some of those issues that you may be having. But at the end of the day, you don't actually have to have all of your questions answered in order to accept what Jesus did. That a man who is his drowning does not need to know how CPR works in order to accept his rescue. He just needs to accept it. And look, I, I know there are probably a whole bunch of you in this room and, and you've already made that decision. And there's probably a whole bunch of you in this room that you're nowhere near making that decision. And again, so glad you could join us this morning. But, but if all of that is true, if there really is a moral law and we can't live up to it and no matter how hard we try, we're never gonna be able to do it and and there's actually a consequence for that. And that consequence is a separation from God and and Jesus is the only way that we can sort out this mess we find ourselves in. Then I would feel absolutely amiss this morning if I did not at least extend an invitation for you to accept what Jesus has done for you. And that's not easy. In fact, that's probably the most difficult decision you will ever make in your entire life. But Jesus has made it really simple for us. That's as simple as A, B, C. That A, you admit it, you just take a look inside and you say, you know what? I actually don't have what it takes. I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and no matter how many times i try, it's like, I keep on failing. I keep on making mistakes. I keep on doing things I know I shouldn't do. That you admit there's something wrong, and that something is inside of you, that you're not a bad person who needs to try harder. You're a sinner who needs a savior. And then B, you believe. And again, we put so much weight on words like believe, so much like Christian jargon and stuff. The word believe just means to trust. That you say, look, I don't have all my questions answered. It doesn't all make sense to me. I don't fully understand how this works, but I trust that somehow, what Jesus did on the cross, when Jesus lifted himself up on nail-pierced hands and feet, and he said, it is finished, that counted for me. And you just put your trust in him, you believe. And then see, you confess. See, when you become a Christian, you don't just get a saviour who makes you better. You get a Lord who becomes the king of your life from that day on. That that Jesus has paid the price. He's bought you with his blood. And and so that means you belong to him. And, And when you confess, you're just saying, look, Jesus, you paid for me, so I'm yours. Wherever you tell me to go, that's where I'll go. Whatever you tell me to say, that's what I'm going to say. I belong to you. So I'm just going to invite everyone just to close your eyes and bow your heads now. And I just do that so there's no distraction, so you don't feel like anyone's watching you or anything weird's going on. I just want to take away any of that. And in a second, if you want to make that decision if you for the first time want to accept what Jesus did for you on the cross, you want to enter into that great exchange, I'm going to invite you to raise your hand. Again, there's nothing magical about raising your hand. It's not some special thing that that enters you into that relationship. It's just an an outward sort of acceptance of what Jesus has done for you. And uh, we just want to be able to pray for you and and, and walk you through that. So uh, I'm going to count down from three. and, And if you this morning for the very first time, you want to accept that great exchange, would you just raise your hand? So three... Two, one, would you raise your hand? But so I'm just gonna pray, and if that is you this morning and you wanna come into that relationship, you want, you want your, the price to be paid for you, just pray these words along in your head. Jesus, I admit that I need you. I believe that somehow what you did on the cross, it counts for me. And I confess you as my Lord and Savior. I belong to you. Amen.